You are now listening to Well-Fed Women, the show that's been radically changing the way women perceive health, fitness, and their bodies since 2015. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr. Submit your questions to wellfedwomen at gmail.com, and you can keep up with the show on Instagram at wellfedwomen. Welcome to the Well-Fed Women Podcast. This is episode number 313. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr of coconutsandkettlebells.com. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner and a National Strength and Conditioning Association certified personal trainer. I'm so thrilled you're here because today is going to be an incredibly insightful and entertaining discussion on eating smarter, specifically when it comes to supporting sleep and Brain Health with best-selling author and podcast royalty, Sean Stevenson. Sean is the host of the Model Health Show, which you've likely seen sitting at the number one spot in health podcasts in Apple Podcasts. Um, I interviewed Sean last year. It was episode number 254 titled Ending Sleep Struggles. I will link to that in the show notes. Highly suggest listening to that episode as it's going to tie in perfectly with everything we're going to be talking about today. We're going to dive into the history of the calorie and why cutting calories is not the secret to better health. We'll also be talking about how to eat to improve sleep, cognitive function, and memory. And of course, we have a ton of really great questions from all of you, specifically around eating for better sleep and meal timing and how that impacts everything. Uh, before we dive in, I want to introduce you to my new favorite drink, Flying Embers Black Cherry Hard Kombucha. Now, I'm not a big drinker. I've established that here. I never drank beer. I don't like traditional hard seltzer. don't like cocktails. And shockingly, I don't even like wine. But I do love me some Flying Embers hard kombucha and hard seltzer. I found them actually a year ago at my local grocery store. And the black cherry hard kombucha and the watermelon chili hard seltzer is now both of them are my drinks of choice. Flying Embers is a better-for-you alcohol brand that brews hard kombucha and probiotic-powered hard seltzer. So all of their products are zero sugar, zero carbs, USDA-certified organic, and brewed with live probiotics and adaptogens. They are all completely gluten-free. When I noticed, what I've noticed personally is that when I drink, like I want to drink at the end of the day, like a lot of us do, um, it gives a nice little buzz. It's very uplifting and light. You won't feel dizzy or out of it the next day. And then there's no bloating like with beer and there's no sugar crash from things like wine and cocktails. So their products are artfully crafted with a dry fermentation process, which gives the hard kombucha a perfectly balanced natural sweetness and it tastes amazing. Fun fact, Flying Embers was founded during the Thomas Fires in Southern California in 2017, where their R&D lab, brewery, and home almost burned down and was saved by first responders. And because of that, they named their brand after it and donated, they continue to donate a portion of every purchase to first responders nationwide. So I think that's really cool. You can receive 15% off your order. They ship worldwide. Go to flyingembers.com slash wellfed. Again, that's flying embers. So it's F L Y I N G 
and then embers, E-M-B-E-R-S dot com forward slash well-fed. The discount is only available there. And make sure you use the code well-fed at checkout. And may I suggest you just go ahead and buy the black cherry because it is by far the best and I love it. Um, Okay, so Sean needs no introduction, but in case you haven't heard his show or read his books. Sean is the author of the international uh, international best-selling book, Sleep Smarter, and the creator of the Model Health Show, featured as the number one health podcast in the U.S. with millions of listeners, millions of downloads and listeners each year. Since you're listening to this, by the way, in your podcast app, just go ahead, hit pause, and go subscribe to his show right now, The Model Health Show. He's a graduate of uh, the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Uh, Sean studied business, biology, and nutritional science, and then went on to be the founder of Advanced Integrative Health Alliance, a company that provides wellness services for individuals and organizations around the world. Sean, in addition to being featured on this show has been featured in Forbes, Fast Company, The New York Times, Muscle and Fitness, ABC News, ESPN, and many other media outlets. Welcome, Sean, back to the show. Grateful to be here. This is the first time anybody's ever said podcast royalty. <laughs> so that's stuck with me. I'm, you know, I, it's I'm, true. I'm, I'm reluctant, you know, with Game of Thrones, you know, as a Game of Thrones vibe to it. So it's just like, Concern for my safety, but at the same time, it's pretty cool. Concern <laughs> for your safety. I think you're pretty safe. It's it's a we're all a loving bunch, but you're definitely podcast royalty. You've been how long have you been doing your show? How long has that been around? So my show, I be, I believe because at some point it just you get into like dog years and you, it doesn't even mm-hmm. matter anymore. But I believe seven years. But I started on another podcast that I was the resident nutritionist for. Uh, 2011, I believe. So it's been 10 years. Wow. You know? Yeah. 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 That's a, that's a long time. And the, the industry has just exploded and changed in so many ways. Um, and a lot of podcasts that started long ago are no longer around for many reasons because things change, but also it's just like things are no longer relevant and it's hard to, you know, stay around when things are changing and exploding. And now there's like 8 million other podcasts to choose from. So um, yours is still providing incredibly valuable content and interviews with the leading experts. So yeah, props to you. Seven years. It's a you. long time. That means a lot. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So I have some interesting tidbits about you that I'm going to share. First, your book, Eat Smarter, hit number one of all Amazon new releases in America. And it looked like the number three spot was, was also held by the audiobook. Was that true? (laughs) Yeah, that was crazy. That was awesome. Actually, it it became number one and two. And this was like, this was out of all books. So like even fiction titles as well. So like, it was very inspiring because, you know, this is a book about health. It's not about like fanfare and politics and, all that stuff. So it's just incredibly inspiring that, you know, people care about this stuff. Yeah. Second, last I checked, the book is slightly backordered on Amazon due to insane demand. Is that true still? Oh, my goodness. So it was exhilarating, but also heartbreaking. Yeah, we ran Mm -hmm. out of books. They sold out within a week of the launch. Uh, So, yeah, it was pretty nuts. But they're actually back in stock as of Monday this week, finally. And so a lot of people are scrambling to get it. And Good. we got now, I, I didn't, haven't shared this publicly yet, but now because of the demand, like Target has asked to do multiple um, 
features for each martyr through 2021, wow. which is a big deal. You know, Target stores like when I was a, I worked at Target when I was in high school. Yeah. You know, so they're not known as like some big health supportive organization. You know, yeah. it's like you get your linens and whatever. But, you know, now like they're they're featuring it prominently. Like they got the little end cap in case display or whatever it's called. And, you know, just to just to put this in front of people who normally wouldn't get access to something like this is just it's really special. Oh, man, that's so exciting. Congratulations. Um, and in, in reading the book, this is the last one, I found out that you and I have some pretty profound similarities. One, you revealed probably like, right off the bat that you were a picky kid who uh, frequently ate fish sticks. And oddly enough, I was also a very picky kid who really only ate fish sticks. That was really my only protein source um, was fish sticks from the freezer. Um, This this is very close. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Second, you had um, a birthday party at McDonald's. And in the first grade, my birthday bash was actually at Mickey D's. And it was really a dream come true. I think a lot of people from our generation had birthday parties at, at like I think I also had one at Burger King, but we, we, that was the deal. You know, it was, it was fast food nation. Um, yeah, that's yeah. so crazy. Like, I literally start off the book talking about my fish sticks <laughs> because that was my thing. And the yeah. copious amounts of ketchup. For me, everything was just a delivery system to get ketchup into my body. Yeah. You know, that was that was it. And the McDonald's birthday parties, yeah, I can remember it so vividly. And yeah. they were like, you know, there's the play area, right? There's the play area with all those sketchy characters. You know, you got Hamburglar. Yeah. You yes. got, you know. Grimace. What is Grimace? I don't know. He was scary. He looks like a overripe, like avocado (laughs) that's just been like, I don't know, genetically. I don't know. But and his name is Grimace. Like Grimace. Doesn't that mean pain? He looks like he's in pain, too. (laughs) Yeah. That's hilarious. It's stuff you don't think about when you're a kid. It's just you don't process through. It's just normal. Um, And then the last thing is, which I want to dive into more here is that you have had some pretty significant struggles with chronic back issues um, like myself, but you were told that there was absolutely nothing that could be done about it. And through it was really through eating smarter. So learning more about food and how it impacted your life and your body that you were able to completely reverse your condition. So talk to me more about that. I know we talked about it a little bit in our in our previous episode about sleep, but I think your personal story sets up everything for this book. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for myself personally, it really started, the wheels really started to fall off from my, you know, fish stick and McDonald diet that I really subsisted on primarily. Uh, My body really starts to break down when I was just 15 years old. I was a sophomore in high school and I, I was one of the top athletes. And I went to one of those schools that, churns out professional athletes and everything was looking great for me. You know, I ran a four five forty, which is like NFL combine level when I was just 15. I was just a kid still. Hmm. And, but at track practice later on, you know, after football season, then there's like a break in the got track season while doing a time trial when it's just, again, I'm not getting hit. I didn't fall. Nobody touched me, but I was just doing a time trial running around the track and my hip broke my iliac crest on my hip just broke off. And I didn't know at the time, of course, I thought maybe I pulled a muscle, I'd never been injured before. But that was just a sign of things to come. Nobody stopped even at that point to ask, how did a kid break his hip from running? And 
It wasn't until it took five years and a string of injuries. I've got game films, football game films where I'm by myself, like I've broken away from the defense. I'm almost to the end zone and I just collapse. Mm. Nobody touches me because my body was just falling apart. And I had about half a dozen more injuries that really tore my identity of being this like capable athlete and like playing at the next level. And at the age of 20, I got this diagnosis of degenerative disc disease. So my disc in between the vertebrae and my spine were rapidly deteriorating. And also I had a rapidly deteriorating bone condition, you know, so my bone density, thus, you know, breaking my hip when I was at track practice. And so long story short, you know, at the time, my physician, well-meaning guy, he put the MRI up for me to see. And he told me that I had this condition. And I, first of all, and everybody can kind of relate to this probably. It's just like, I was glad to know that what the issue was because I'd been dealing with something. And sometimes you just want to know that there's uh, confirmation. And so now that I know the thing, okay, now let's fix it. And I, and I said that to him, like, okay, so what do we do to, to fix it? And he looked at me, kind of cocked his head and he said, there's, I'm sorry, son, there's nothing you can do. This is incurable. And like, it didn't register to my brain the first time he said it. And so, and literally, I'm not kidding to this day, I have no grounds for asking him this question. I have no idea what compelled me to ask him this question, but I asked him, does this, does this have anything to do with what I'm eating? Should I change the way that I'm exercising? And he kind of looked at me with pity and he said, this has nothing. He literally, this is the exact words. He said, this has nothing to do with what you're eating. This is something that just happens. And I'm sorry it happened to you. We're going to get you some medication to help you manage this pain. And I'm sorry, son. You know, and that, that was that, you know, he kind of sent me on my way and let me paint this picture for you. I don't share this very often, but that, that my physician was obese. Hmm. All right. And I don't really talk about that very often because it didn't register until recently that like, wait a minute, like there's something fundamentally flawed about our system of health, you know, and also understanding the, the, the partnership that we should be in with our healthcare professionals, you know, to be wonderful teachers and coaches, even the word doctor derives from a Latin word meaning teacher, you know, but the teaching part has been so removed from the system. We just get diagnosed with illnesses and get drugs to treat those symptoms and we're sent on our way. And these are very well-meaning folks. You know, these are, of course, many of my friends and colleagues, but the system itself just churns out ignorance. And so, you know, again, long story long, <laughs> after I get this diagnosis, I was, you know, really brokenhearted and just spiraled downward, you know, from that point, from the age of 20 to 22, I mean, man, like, because I was still eating the way that I was eating my entire life, which, and I'm not exaggerating at all. I ate fast food every single day, every day. And if you think that that's a stretch, 84 million Americans, this is what we, what we know now, statistically, 84 million Americans eat fast food every day, 84 million. I was just one of those people. And making my body out of those things and being told by my physician to be careful, don't do anything, bed rest. Mm -hmm. And this is the craziest part. I could still walk, Noel. I could walk. Why do you tell me bed rest? Like I could still mm -hmm. move, mm -hmm. you know, and yep. every physician I saw there after, same thing. I'm sorry, son. 
sorry this happened to you, this is incurable, here's a, you know, prescription for bed rest, you know, show your school, your employer, whatever, take it easy, here's some more drugs. And that was what happened. And I gained a lot of weight, obviously, and everything changed. Here's the the, the culmination, because obviously I'm okay. I'm okay now. <laughs> you made it. <laughs> <laughs> but what it was, was finally after two years, and some people never get it, you know, some people get it faster, but it took me two years and a lot of suffering and a lot of just, man, it was just a very, very, very trying time. And I'm just, I'm grateful to that old me for, for coming out of it. But I realized that even though these physicians meant well, they didn't walk in my shoes. And I had been outsourcing. I saw myself as a very capable, analytical human. Like, I just have this tendency towards logic and towards thinking things out and questioning things. Like, that's kind of my tendency. And I, and I had their diagnosis bypassed, bypassed my reasoning. And it's due to something that's called a nocebo effect. Maybe we can circle back and talk about it later. But I had relented to give my health away, my potential away. I outsourced it to somebody else. And it was the first time it took two years. And it was the first time I asked, instead of asking habitually, why me? Why won't somebody help me? And I talk about this in Eat Smarter. It's a process called instinctive elaboration that the brain does. Our brains are constantly, they're driven to find the answers to questions. But usually it's happening unconsciously. And it's subtle questions like, you know, you know, um, how, how can I get to work on time? Where are my kids? You know, like, but qu- we're constantly questioning things and questions are the answer. And so I was habitually asking, why me? And so my brain is just scanning my environment, internal, external for reasons as to why my life sucks, as to why I'm not helpable. And the list goes on and on. But I finally ask simple question. What can I do to get better? What can I do to get healthy? I never thought about it. And from that point forward, and this is truly, I'll just fast forward this part. It took about six weeks. And the craziest part, the solutions were there the whole time. I just didn't, I wasn't attuned to them. You know, there are people in my life who had access to information about changing my body, about healing my spine. I had friends, but I just never, I didn't tap into those resources. But Nine months later, I got a scan done. I completely reversed the degeneration. My two herniated discs had retracted on their own. And at that point, I had already become a strength and conditioning coach. And I was working with my professors. They were my clients, fellow students. Um, I shifted all my coursework over to biology and back to back to biology because I initially went to college for that and nutritional science and opened my clinical practice. Eventually working with people, you know, one on one for many years. I was just like, I need to write this stuff down. So I started writing books and recorded the podcast. And, you know, it's just been an incredible journey ever since then. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people can relate to that because so many people experience like a, a diagnosis. They, they experience sort of like, um, like it's set in stone. You have this condition. There's nothing you can do. Food doesn't impact it at all. And even though We've come so far in the alternative health, I'll put in quotations, the alternative health or the, you know, the holistic health world. I feel like, you know, we've come so far and, and so many people now understand that food does impact your health and movement does impact your health. And all there's, there's all these things that, that do, that can reverse or change your condition or help you manage your, your conditions. That's still not the conventional 
way of thinking. And still to this day, you know, from like your doctor's perspective, that's still really pervasive. It's, oh, gosh, no, of course not. Like food doesn't impact you. And most doctors still think food doesn't impact autoimmune conditions. Food doesn't impact um, inflammation. Like maybe, just maybe you'll hear about it from like digestive gastroenterologists or, you know, people that that focus Mm -hmm. on digestion. But sometimes but even not. that, yeah. <laughs> but even that, then this is this is the reason why. This is the reason why. Because again, like this, it should be Captain Obvious at this point. It should have been Captain Obvious in the very beginning. But here's why this really is: we've got entire fields of nutrigenomics, nutrigenetics, looking at how every bite of food shifts and changes your genetic expression. Right, literally changing what your genes are doing, what your DNA is doing, what kind of copies are getting printed out of you. This is well-known stuff, but it's not it's not a part of the, the conventional conversation. It's not built into the system because the system itself, a, a, a model can only be as good as its underlying premise. And the model of our healthcare system is fundamentally absolutely flawed. Not even flawed, it's it's outright destructive because, as you just mentioned, I the top gastroenterologists in the world, I know these guys. The top cardiologists, the top neuroscientists, the list goes on and on. But just take gastroenterologists, for example, a really good friend of mine. He went to school and he's award winning, New York Times bestselling author, the whole thing. But he had to make a change himself. He went to school for 16 years to learn about the treatment of the organs associated with the assimilation, digestion and elimination of food. All right. That's the organs he's treating. But he learned about food for two weeks mm. in 16 years. He only he tr- he treats the organs that deal with food. <laughs> it is so wrong. It's absurd. But here's to take it a step further. Those organs, your gastrointestinal tract, all the microbes associated, the your, your liver, your pancreas, all of these organs themselves, they're made from food. Cardiology, again, knowing the top cardiologists, the heart is made of food. It's made of food. The blood running through your veins, it's made from food and water. The arteries and veins themselves, the actual physical structure, it's made from food. And yet they're not taught about food. And we're treating organs without understanding what they're actually made of. It's so twisted. There's something fundamentally wrong. And so this that's why it's outpictured the way that it has, mm. you know. And so once we can actually make this cognitive switch, which I'm making it very easy to do, to, be, to realize, oh, wait, you, oh, the heart is made from food. Right. <laughs> right. You know, because yeah, it's just kind of glanced over. And it's in, in, in our system. We have very these are, again, and remarkably intelligent people. But if you take very smart people and you teach them the wrong thing. They become world class at doing the wrong thing. Mm. All right. And so until we can make that cognitive switch, like, again, flip that switch to realizing, oh, it's all made from food. Then we'll start to understand how much food matters. I just want to take a moment to remind you to go ahead and put on your Blue Blocks glasses. In the last few weeks, there have been days where I don't realize I'm not wearing my blue light blocking glasses while looking at screens. And if I don't have them on while just doing normal stuff like working on my computer, my phone, 
And then at night, watching a show with the kids, I am a disaster. I have horrible eye strain, headaches, nausea, and trouble sleeping. This is because blue light is incredibly stimulating and can negatively impact your circadian rhythms. In 2021, I firmly believe proactively filtering out blue light with Blue Block's computer and their Sleep Plus glasses is an absolute necessity. The Blue Block's computer glasses filter out all the harsh blue light we experience when looking at our screens. They're clear. They don't have a color. And then the Sleep Plus glasses block all blue and green light between 400 nanometers to 550 nanometers, which is the exact range that has been shown in clinical trials to disrupt melatonin and negatively impact our sleep. To get our special 15% discount, go to blueblocks.com slash wellfed. That's blueblocks, so B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com slash wellfed. And then our code is wellfed at checkout. These glasses are super high quality. They are comfortable and they are stylish. I don't mind wearing them all day. I don't even realize I'm wearing them. I actually have three pairs because I'm extra, but I I wanted a spare in case I lost mine, which has actually happened and it was awful. They were actually stuck in the couch cushions. Uh, I love the look of the frames. And if you need helping anything anything out, just come over to our Well-Fed Women Holistic Health community on Facebook and I can help. Again, that's blueblocks.com slash wellfed. And then use our code wellfed for 15% off and you'll get free shipping worldwide. I love in in your book too, you were like, you, you said a light bulb moment for you was basically, okay, what do, what new, like how are my bones made and what do they need? And that was that light bulb moment for you, which you just, you know, discussed more in depth was like, okay, I have a back problem. I have a bone issue. I have a disc issue. What do these discs, what do, what do my bones need? And let me make sure that I'm getting that from, from what I'm eating, which is, which is, I mean, seems like a simple concept, but it actually is a very profound light bulb moment for, most people. And I, I think, honestly, I think a lot of the issues, underlying issues, which we can move into talking about calories for a second, a lot of the issues that we have now in, in the health world, let's say both the dieting world and the conventional disease treatment world, is that health is really all about calories. <laughs> so like if somebody were to be, you know, if hey, I want to be healthier, doc, what should I do? Well, you should really uh, cut your calories. <laughs> Like, no, no, no focus on, hey, maybe really include, you know, quality foods and focus on getting a lot of nutrients in. It's 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 all focused on the calorie, which is why I love that you come right off the bat and talk about kind of the history of the calorie and why it really wasn't meant to be used uh, as a way for us to track what we should eat. So. Talk to me a little bit about the history of the calorie and and how it took over the health in- industry, specifically some of the things that you mentioned about uh, Dr. Peter's book. I think it was in 1918-ish around World War One. That was really where we started to see calories and, and our morality wrapped up with how many calories we eat. Yeah. Oh, this is so good. And there, we kind of had a little giggle there because um, I went to, again, I, I paid, I went to a nice private university and you know they had a great pre-med track the nutritional science class that i took was an elective like i didn't have to take it but i took it because i thought that nutrition 
was going to make me more fit. Like I thought nutrition was fitness. You know, I still didn't need to understand the nuance there. And the very first day of this big auditorium style classroom, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed college, college student. And the very first day, the nutritional science teacher told us that if you can manage calories, you can manage your weight. If you can manage calories, you can manage your health. Calories were really the tip of the spear. It was our main metric for determining our outpicturing of our health. And we were all indoctrinated, as our entire society was, with calories being the king of the nutritional conversation. And I just want to point us to one simple fact. Look at the results that it's had. Has it worked out? Because so many people just like, and many people have seen success, let's be clear about that, with managing calories and using it as a metric. But you have to understand that many, many millions more have not. And they've tried very, very hard because there's missing a very important component. And this is a new term that I'm really working to impress upon culture. It's called epicaloric control, right? And I've identified seven clinically proven factors that literally control what calories do in our bodies. They supersede calories. But to get to that place, I, I, and I always ask this question, I, it's just kind of cultivated over time. Whenever there's this dominant idea in culture, I just have this thing about, hmm, I wonder where that came from. Huh, calories, huh? Where did this start? And so it takes me on these adventures that I'll get wrapped up and you know, my wife knows this, I'll get immersed into these universes for like extended amounts of time. And then I went and looked into the realm of the calorie. And when it was invented, nobody was looking for it, by the way, for anything to do with nutrition, all right? And if you look at the very physical cultures that we still look to today, the ancient Greeks and Romans and Egyptians, nobody ever said shit about a calorie, right? It wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing. People just ate food. Can you imagine? No, well, just eating food. I can, actually. (laughs) I know you can. (laughs) But now now it's really shifted to where we think of food in in a different fashion, which I'll get to in just a second. So where did this happen? Well, when the calorie was first, quote, invented, it was used in the, the fields of engineering and physics. And it eventually made its parlay into the world of nutrition, thanks in large part to a guy named Wilbur Atwater. But He's kind of a footnote because the person who really popularized it, as you mentioned, is a woman named Dr. Lulu Hunt Peters, absolute pioneer for sure. Um, and she wrote a nutritional bestseller, uh, Key to Calories. And this was, again, the early part of the 1900s. And when I say nutritional bestseller, she sold over two million copies of this book back then. This is basically anybody who can read mm-hmm. had this book. All right. And now she imparted some very, very powerful ideas that we are still we are still imbibing today. And so one of those things, this was when we made the shift from food being looked at as this very powerful, multifaceted entity. As I mentioned, everything about us is made from food. If we're talking about our brains, the axon terminals, the dendrites, the gray matter, the white matter, all of it's made from food. The thing that allows us to have thoughts, feelings, and emotion is made from food. It is much, much more powerful than what happened because it made the shift from being this powerful, multifaceted entity to being numbers. 
She said that we will no longer eat food. We will eat calories of food. You will no longer eat a slice of bread. You'll eat 100 calories of bread. You will no longer eat a slice of pie. You'll eat 350 calories of pie. And she relented that a woman of her height could eat whatever she wanted so long as she maintained a strict caloric intake of 1,200 calories a day. Now, here's the sidebar. She battled with her weight her entire life. The very thing she was advocating did not work for her. But this is a thing when experts get their hands on an idea and then they run that thing into the ground because it's just like, well, I found out the cure. I found the solution. We just need to manage the energy and food. And so that's number one. We made the shift from thinking about food as this powerful entity that makes us who we are to thinking about it in terms of numbers. That's idea one. Idea number two, she, and I went back and read these old fangled writings and it was, I could not believe some of the stuff she was saying. It's so crazy. But then you see the results in our society today. It's very real. She, and this is what I love about you too. You're one of the very few people that has talked about this thing that she imparted into culture. She's the, the, the anti-hero who began to indoctrinate our, our citizens with the idea of relating food to morality, right? And she used words like punishment and sin and it being a character defect if you're not able to maintain your weight when you're managing your caloric numbers. There's something wrong with you. And so it had nothing to do with the quality of food. It had nothing to do with the, 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 the organs and systems that manage calories, which we'll talk about momentarily. It had to do with you. You're a bad person. Mm. And that is, it has inundated us so much. And many of us have developed a state of learned helplessness because of this. So that's part two. Third and final part that she, well, there's many others, but these are the mega uh, turning points for us. She also indoctrinated citizens with the idea that if you're hungry, if you're dieting, if you're cutting your calories and you're hungry, you're doing it right. That's how it's supposed to work. Right. And she said this. So I'm paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But she said that whenever you have a hunger pang, and this was, again, during times of food rationing, she said, whenever you have a hunger pang, you should have a double joy knowing that you're saving the hunger pangs in a starving child. You're saving the hunger pangs in someone else. Your suffering is helping the greater good. Man, wow. I would have clients coming into my office for years. Patients, you know, getting sent over to me from various physicians, believing that if they're hungry, it's working. Mm. It's a subconscious belief that I could just ask a few questions and I'd identify it consistently for most people. And it's just fundamentally wrong because here's the truth. Having a natural state of hunger every now and then is normal, but chronic hunger, that is an indication that something is wrong. Mm. And one of the big takeaways from Eat Smart and also from today is that chronic nutrient deficiency leads to chronic hunger. Chronic nutrient deficiency leads to chronic overeating. We're literally feeding the problem, right? So those are some big overarching tenets that we have Dr. Lulu Hunt-Peters to thank. But again, now today, we know there's seven factors clinically proven that actually control what calories do in our bodies. And I definitely want to share at least a couple of them because they're game changing. Yeah, please do. Like, yeah, you touched on a little bit. Like, why is there more that 
than meets the eye when it comes to calories. And I think that that's important to address because I because literally women are stuck in this mindset and they think that if they eat less, you perfectly summed it up. It's like eating less is 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 equated to like like more worthiness you know you're doing it right and so we we think that our many women think that their life is supposed to be about eating as little food as possible how can i eat less most women spend their life trying to figure that out or at least like their their early 20s in college and then they become adults and they're like i can't i can't keep doing this i'm miserable my health is failing i have hormonal imbalances i'm constipated i'm not sleeping and my hair's falling out and it, and then they realize it's about nutrients not calories so um yeah what why is there more than meets the eye when it comes to calories sure yeah so again and i want everybody to embrace this term and really use it Uh, and i know that it's possible to change culture because it happened with sleep smarter you know it, it was the first sleep wellness book to become an international bestseller it changed culture i hadn't i had no idea that would happen i was simply trying to address a gap in the conversation of health, you know, this was back in like 2013 or whenever that was. Um, but now like there's so much out, like most folks had know something about the importance of sleep wellness at this point. So when I'm saying epicaloric control, this is a term we want to use. These are above caloric control. One of them, and this is just as an easy parlay and why Dr. Peters continued to struggle herself is the the quality of food itself matters. We say this, people said it, they've been saying it for years. I've said it. It's not just the calories, it's the quality of the calories. No, we really know now, all right? So uh, this is one of of the most um, really eye-opening studies, and this was published in the prestigious journal, Food and Nutrition Research. And the researchers wanted to find out what, what would happen to our caloric expenditure when we eat a meal of whole foods, versus a meal of processed foods. Let's actually see what happens. And so they had test subjects to consume, and by the way, this is what they deemed to be whole foods, a meal of a whole food sandwich, all right? So it was multi-grain bread and cheddar cheese, all right? So those are the whole food eaters. Then they had another group of test subjects eat a processed food sandwich, which was white bread and cheese product. And if anybody's like, what the hell is cheese product? Craft singles, right? They can't call it craft cheese because there's enough cheese in the cheese, right? Legally. So that's what they ate for the second set of group uh, test subjects. Now, here's the most important part the sandwiches are the exact same amount of calories. They're the same amount of fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. They're the same on paper. And according to Dr. Peters and so many other, quote, weight loss experts and weight loss physicians, the, the sandwiches are going to be the same as long as you're managing your calories. Aha! But here's what happened. Here's what happened. After they compiled the data, they discovered that the folks who ate the processed food sandwich had a 50% reduction in calorie burn after eating that sandwich versus the people who ate the whole food sandwich. All right? 50% reduction. What it created effectively was what I call these hormonal clogs that essentially damaged their metabolism, making their body more stingy and hanging on to the calories they just consumed. All right. It changed their metabolism in such a detrimental way that it made their body hang on to that caloric energy. 
right? This thing, again, we created this term for something to measure the energy in food, but it did not apply as suspected when it came to the type of food. So that's number one. The quality of food dramatically determines the impact that calories have on our bodies, right? And I'll share one more really quickly. Um, Again, there's seven of these factors. Maybe we can get to another one, but I want to share this one. This is so important. Your brain determines what your body does. Your brain determines whether or not you're absorbing calories from your food in the first place. It doesn't just happen. Your brain, we we know about now, we talk about this again, the gut-brain connection, but this is so much deeper than this. This was published in the, and again, I map this out in Eat Smarter, kind of detail it a little bit more, but this was published in the Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences. They reported that this is one of the biggest health issues today that nobody's talking about. Hypothalamic inflammation, brain inflammation, is a double-edged sword in nutritional diseases. The researchers determined that this inflammation in our brain and also inflammation in our gut directly creates excess body fat. And that excess body fat itself creates inflammation in our brains. And now here's how all of this works. And this was from researchers at Yale University School of Medicine. They've discovered that, you know, we've got the vagus nerve, right? It's connecting the brain and the gut. They're constantly sending data back and forth on the nutritional needs of the body. And finding that damage or abnormal activity. Oh, by the way, let me make clear about this. This connection between the gut and the brain, based on your body's assessment of caloric need, your brain can turn up the absorption of calories from the food that you eat. It can literally just say, I'm going to take more from that. Or it can make your body turn down the absorption of calories from the food that you eat. It's like a, it's, I call it like a metabolic thermostat hmm. in our brain, right? Especially the hypothalamus is determining your metabolic rate, and also your absorption of calories from your food, whether or not you're consuming more or less. This isn't accounted for on product labels. And again, so many people are struggling, not realizing that there can be potential damage in the communication between their gut and their brain, making their body absorb more from their food and also making their body keep it on their system, like can get, as I mentioned earlier, stingy and hang on to that energy longer. And so, yeah, the researchers discovered that inflammation in the gut and or neuroinflammation is one of the biggest issues today in metabolic diseases because it's making our bodies absorb more from our food. And also because in the craziest part, this is the last part, you would think if we have enough energy stored that your body would be like, I'm good, but that's not the case. There's this disruption that's taking place that's causing the body haphazardly to keep absorbing more and not getting the signal that we have enough stored, right? And there's this term of leptin resistance is one of the symptoms, Mm. right? Leptin is glorified as one of our major satiety hormones, but poetically or ironically, it's produced by our fat cells. And so if you've got a lot of fat doing a lot of what fat does, you would think that you know, I'm producing a lot of leptin, I should feel more satisfied. But it's not about the production of leptin. It's the leptin sensitivity. It's the receptor sites. And those getting downregulated because of all of the haphazard. It's kind of like hormones are like metabolic DMs, right? <laughs> Sending like virtual text messages and emails. Now, what happens if you start getting spammed by, by one particular 
um, outlet is continuing to send one signal. So, for example, leptin, if your system's flooded with leptin, it's going to start going to spam. It's going to get flagged. And the sensitivity to that, that message is going to go down. The responsiveness is going to go down. And these are all things, again, above caloric control that are controlling what our metabolism is actually doing. Yeah. You also talked about the complexity of digestion, um, how food is prepared, like so many different things impact how a calorie or how a f- how food impacts our body. And one of the things that we touch on a lot on this podcast is stress, because, of course, we have a lot of women who feel like, well, I want to lose weight or I have I- I'm not sure why I gained a bunch of weight. I don't know what I'm doing. Like, where did this come from? And a lot of times stress has changed the physiology of the body and like you said, the body in times of stress is going to hold on to calories. Um, it's also why when people are under eating, like you said, when people are eating 1200 calories and they don't yeah. lose weight, they wonder why. It's because you're, you're chronically stressed. I mean, at some point, starving yourself is, is going to lead to an underfed and underweight body. I mean, if you can eat, you know, stop eating, then it, that's eventually going to happen. But, there's this this spot that a lot of women exist in where they're chronically underfed and they don't know they think they just need to keep cutting their calories and that's just not the answer because their f- entire physiology their their metabolism like you said your brain um has completely changed and, and your your dynamic between your brain and your and your gut and your, your brain and your body essentially has completely changed to adapt so um, the whole second part of your book, which I love, is about eating for your brain and eating for sleep. I, I want to jump to what you mentioned is as something called a brain diet, which I think is really cool. And I've never thought about it in a way of like, I wonder what nutrients my brain actually needs. So you talked about a little you talked a little bit about brain inflammation. So what are the most important nutrients when it comes to our our brain diet, so to speak? And how can we improve our memory and focus and maybe reduce that inflammation um, yeah. so that our body can, you know, come back into balance? Uh, it's so good. And I'm going to give everybody like a couple of specific foods that are clinically proven to help to reduce and address that neuroinflammation. There are wonderful diets out there that actually that accidentally do this, you know, but most diets are not coming out and saying, you know what, we need to address the inflammation in your brain to get your metabolism back online and get it healthy. But so number one, the brain itself, theoretic, theoretical physicist Michio Kaku. It's the most complicated entity in the known universe, right? He's a pretty smart guy. And the thing is, it, it, it really is. And it's kind of cool. We all have one. First of all, like you've got, you hit the lottery, like you've got one of these, but we don't really know how to use it very well oftentimes. And a big part of that, you know, when I mentioned earlier that our, our brain is literally made from the food that we eat, but your brain is different from everything else about you. Because your brain has a very specific diet that it that it consumes. We call it neuronutrition. And your brain, being that it's the most complicated, powerful entity in the known universe, another weird like cosmic joke is that it's also incredibly fragile. <laughs> it's like the it's the consistency of soft butter, right? It is it could not survive on its own. All right, out here. The your brain would get, you know, I don't know. Smashed. Uh, somebody could spread on it. toast. It, yeah. 
Yeah. There you there you go. Right. <laughs> Easily a butter knife can take you out. But you know, nature came to the party with you got the external cranium, it's the only organ fully encased in hard bone. But you also have an internal security system as well, an internal protection called the blood brain barrier. And it only allows in very specific nutrients. All right. There are only specific nutrients because your brain has to throughout our evolution. I'm just being 1000 here. If we ate something, it can potentially kill us. All right. And so your brain takes that very seriously and is very choosy about what it, what it allows in because it's responsible for regulating any kind of response. And so the blood brain barrier is that added layer of protection. Can I, and so where, where so, is the blood brain barrier? Like, where does this thing exist? <laughs> yeah, so, this is actually, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I said, does that make sense? Like I, 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 you know, we talked about questions. I'm like, where is this thing? Is this like a little door under, uh, like right underneath <laughs> our skull? <laughs> well, so this is the thing about where we are. And man, what I'm about to share is so freaking crazy. There's even a difference between, you know, our brain and our mind. Like we don't even know where the mind is. You know, we, like we've got this awareness throughout our entire physiology, but we kind of live in our heads, right? But our mind is like expansive and like supersedes the physical brain itself. And so the brain, we, we still, we, we are, I'm, I'm going to be clear about this. We know so little, and this is where the magic happens. All right. This is where the real magic happens is once you realize how little we know, you know, right now, virology is a big deal. The top virologist in the world who's, I mean, he, he studied every kind of like vi vi viruses on viruses on viruses. He knows less than 0.00001% about all the viruses there are and even how viruses work. We know nothing. We know nothing. We're just, it's just kind of like a process of becoming less stupid. All right. <laughs> we don't know anything. Yeah. And I think the great teachers throughout history just realize like, Man, we are really, we don't know anything. We're just trying to make sense of all this. We're spinning around in outer space on this blue snow globe, glorified snow globe. Like we don't, we have no idea what's happening. And so with the blood brain barrier, it's throughout the brain. It's not just kind of one location. Hmm. There's many different parts of the, uh, many different toll booths for nutrition to get access to your brain and also for uh, metabolic waste products to leave the brain, right? We're still understanding that. And so that was a lot to say that piece. But what I wanted to create was an analogy of having toll booths throughout the brain that are allowing in nutrition and allowing out metabolic waste. Because a toll booth scenario is like, you know, for some stuff, it's got to get stopped. You got to get checked, you know, to be able to travel into the brain. But then there's like express passes, for some other lanes that allow in nutrients in droves. And so the brain allows in number one, water, like in droves, because it's the most dominant thing the brain is made of. Your brain is about 80%, upwards of 80% water, which making it the most water dominant organ in the body next to your lungs. And when I say this, I think again, people really, we can miss it because it's so simple and profound, but I want people to really get this, that 
just a two, and this is one of the studies I talk about in Eat Smarter. This was published in Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise. They found just a 2% drop in our body's baseline hydration level can lead to mental impairment and damage, create, start to create damage in our cognitive performance. So reductions in motor coordination, executive function, so things like spatial recognition, map recognition, realizing where you are in space, uh, grammatical reasoning, mental math, forethought, like being able to map things out and see, like, if I do this thing, this thing's going to happen. All right. So this is very serious. And you know this as well. So many people like looking for that nootropic, that thing to take for their their brain function. Hmm. Nothing even remotely comes close to water. If we're not addressing level one, why are we trying to talk about level 72? You know, so Mm -hmm. this is number one, express pathways. And guess what? Super Captain Obvious question for everybody. If you've got a fire, right? Neuroinflammation, inflammation literally means to set on fire. That's what it's derived from. If you've got something on fire, what do you do to put the fire out? Use water. Hmm. Right. So that's the number one thing for dressing neuroinflammation is improving our hydration practices. The second thing, and, and again, there's so many here and talking about the neuronutrition, but I just did a post about this a few minutes ago. So I'm going to share, share this because I think, again, it can be one of those things that gets glanced over. It's not just water itself, but also this term. And I know this is very popular in our space right now, but electrolytes, all right? Elect, listen to the name, electrolyte. Mm. So your brain is running on electrical currency. Electrolytes are required to maintain proper water balance in your brain. And also researchers at McGill University found that sodium, for example, just one electrolyte functions as an quote, on off switch in the brain for specific neurotransmitters to actually control your cognitive performance and to protect your brain against diseases like epilepsy, neuropathic pain, the list goes on and on. This is not a joke. We need electrolytes, not just for the sports performance side, but your brain cannot run without them. And I'll share one more really quickly Mm -hmm. because this is the biggest mineral deficiency, but it's also an electrolyte, a double blind. This is again, gold standard of study, double blind placebo controlled study published in the journal of Alzheimer's disease found that improving magnesium levels in test subjects who had noted cognitive decline or between the age of 50 and 70 could potentially reverse their brain aging. They were seeing looking at their brains by over nine years, make their brain younger physically and functionally by improving their magnesium levels. Mm. All right. And Alzheimer's is one of those things that's considered once it's set, you know, get it hooked, get its hooks into you. It's nothing you can do about it, but try to delay it. They found you can actually reverse brain aging by providing these electrolytes. All right. So, again, very specific neuro and um, neuronutrition. Where do we get magnesium? Food first with everything. Food first. Anything green is going to be a great source of magnesium. Um Nuts and seeds, chocolate, good source of magnesium, list goes on and on. But I wanted to share something very tangible uh, in wrapping in this point. Like, what can we do about this neuroinflammation? Another piece, researchers at Auburn University found that oleocanthal-rich extra virgin olive oil 
is now clinically proven to reduce neuroinflammation. And it was found to repair the blood-brain barrier that gets damaged wow. from inflammation. All right. Hmm. I'm not even it's I'm not like I, I don't have an olive oil company. I don't care if it works or not. Like it's just what the data shows. And so it's so remarkable that we have this food source that can repair the blood brain barrier. Man, that's really wow. that's really something special. Yeah, it makes me think that deficiency, I mean, since we're so deficient in magnesium, I mean, obviously, we've kind of had this convergence of whole foods have less and less magnesium, we're eating more processed foods, so we're eating less whole foods altogether. And like, we just, everybody's chronically deficient in magnesium. I've talked to so many different doctors and functional medicine practitioners, and they're like, oh, yeah, anytime I pull any sort of organic acid test or whatever, and I'm looking at magnesium levels, they are rock bottom. And it, it's, it's a it's a mineral that's used to support our stress response and, and everything. So it it you have to think, and I mean even sleep, which I want to jump into quickly. But it, like you, so many issues could be potentially caused by this massive magnesium deficiency. So um, when you you mentioned a few nutrients for the brain. I would assume that some of that correlates to nutrients for sleep. And then I want to just jump into a few of our listener questions about sleep and how to get better sleep and how to use food to get better sleep. But just to kind of set the foundation, what are good sleep nutrients? So what do we need to consider when we're thinking about eating for good sleep? Mm. You know, this is a big this is a big topic. Yeah, this could be a whole um, episode. So I, sorry. Yeah. So what I did, there's a chapter in the book called Edible Sleep. And we talk about how, because again, I I wrote Sleep Smarter, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's amazing. There's 21 clinically proven strategies for improving our sleep in the book. But you can have the fanciest, pantsiest mattress. You can have your, you know, the blackout curtains. You can have a screen curfew, all of the external stuff. It's not going to matter much if you don't provide your body with the raw materials, the specific nutrients that build your sleep related hormones and neurotransmitters that actually enable your body to do the thing we call sleep. This is how important our nutrition is. It supersedes everything. And so but then we also talk about the very powerful relationship between our gut bacteria, because researchers at Caltech found that there are specific gut bacteria that communicate with the cells in our gut that produce, you know, so these are the enterochromaffin cells, our sleep-related hormones and neurotransmitters. And damage to the gut, and I share one of the, like, really eye-opening studies, damage to the gut has been proven now to directly damage our sleep quality, all right? So damage to your microbiome specifically. Hmm. And why does this matter? Well, in my, uh, it's, Every time I talk about this, it's kind of like I paid for that education going to college. All right. I paid to be miseducated. I was taught that, again, I paid for this, that your, quote, glorified sleep hormone, melatonin, is produced in your pineal gland. That's it. End of story. Turn the page. Nothing else to say here. Nothing to see. The reality is this. We know today that there's upwards of 400 times more melatonin in your gut than in your brain, all right? And now we know that, not only that, melatonin is so much more than a glorified sleep hormone, is a controller of your circadian clock, 
right? That's determining when every other hormone is getting produced. That's determining your uh, reproductive hormone, your reproductive cycle is determining your digestion. Melatonin, just to say melatonin is a sleep hormone is like saying, I don't know, Tiger Woods is really good at swimming in a metal stick. With a, I don't know. Like, right. it's just like, it's so, it, it, it's a little bit dismissive. It's, it's like really a miscategorization. So number one, number two, serotonin is a precursor to making melatonin. And many people have said this, but I want, I want to reiterate it here. Upwards of about 90% of our body serotonin is produced and stored in the gut. We think sleep is a head thing. We think feeling good is a head thing because serotonin is also related to like, it's kind of feel good neurotransmitter. This has so much to do with what's happening in our belly. All right. So we get in, we talk about all that and protecting our number one, remove the cause what's damaging our microbiome and damaging our sleep, but also adding in some, what I call these good sleep nutrients. And I'll share a couple of them real quick. So number one, um, and this is no particular order, but this is just coming up since we're talking about serotonin and melatonin, a precursor to creating serotonin, which again, then that creates melatonin is tryptophan, right? Tryptophan. And it's in this category of essential amino acids, which I think that terminology is going to change in the upcoming hmm. years because it's like, how, how are the other ones not essential, you know, but yeah. Anyways, I just won't get into it. But these are, you know, which you can't, you need to get from your diet. But man, there's, our, our nutrition is so much more diverse and complex than this. But anyway, so tryptophan stands out as a key building block for better sleep. Specifically, it's noted in one of the studies I talk about in the book, deficiency in tryptophan has been found to create disruptions in your REM sleep, all right, rapid eye movement sleep. Hmm. And, um, the study found that folks who were able to improve their tryptophan levels have been shown to reduce wakefulness at night, so meaning they wake up less often and increase mental alert alertness after waking up in the morning. And that was published in the journal Nutrients. So it's no joke. You might think about tryptophan as far as like naps on Thanksgiving, you know, from the turkey. <laughs> right, right. But arguably, I mean, that's it's just like the sheer amount of food we eat. You know, it's like that's that's more so what it is than the tryptophan. But okay, yes, turkey is a is a decent source of tryptophan. Chicken, lobster, eggs, cheese, chocolates in here again. Spinach, pumpkin seeds are a great source of tryptophan. Peanuts, spirulina, and even as I'm listing these foods, everything's not going to be for everybody. That's why we need to have options, mm -hmm. right? Because you might hear lobster and you're like, damn. That's a reason to eat lobster. Like, I like lobster. But then you might hear peanuts. It's like, it might put up a red flag for you. Like, oh, no, peanuts are out here, like, killing people. You know, mm -hmm. Mr. Peanut is a straight-up murderer, right? So then you're just like, well, not, not for that one, right? But we need to know so we can do what's best for us. So tryptophan is one of those good sleep nutrients. All right, let's get – maybe I can drop two more really quickly. Yeah. Um, vitamin C is another one. This one's super important. Hmm. We know about this for the immune system, but it's key for building our sleep-related hormones, neurotransmitters. Here's one of the outpicturing. This was published in the journal uh, Appetite and also PLOS One too. Demonstrated that insufficient intake of vitamin C directly increases the likelihood of sleep disturbances and shortens the overall duration of your sleep time. Huh. Vitamin C. 
I didn't realize that about C. I didn't. I had no clue. Yeah, and I mean, we've all thing. been taking it more because of, like, you know, for obvious reasons. But I really feel like my sleep has been so much better lately um, for many reasons. But but yeah. that, that's huge. That's huge. I'll tell you, in my clinical practice, the two nutrients that I saw, it was the craziest thing. And I've even seen for myself. Getting people's magnesium levels addressed and vitamin C, those two things improve their sleep quality more so than just about anything I saw personally. Now, and again, why is why does this matter? Because these two nutrients get zapped. That's a technical term. I've never, I don't even know if I've ever said zapped before. I just had like a picture of like a comic book. Yeah. Never zap. mind. Anyways, they get zapped from your system very quickly because they're used for so many things. Magnesium is responsible for over 650 biochemical processes. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, that means there's 650 things your body cannot do or cannot do efficiently when you're deficient in magnesium. As you mentioned, this is actually the number one mineral deficiency. We know this now. Upwards of about 60% of the U.S. population is chronically deficient in magnesium because it's responsible for so many things related to our sleep and sleep management. Uh, a double-blind placebo-controlled study, this was published in 2012, found that improving magnesium levels directly improves our sleep efficiency, so meaning we go through our sleep cycles more efficiently, improves the function of melatonin, helping it to do its job, reduces cortisol, and reduces wake after sleep onset, meaning that when you fall asleep, you don't wake up as as often. Again, I mentioned magnesium foods, uh, avocados, pumpkin seeds, almonds, dark chocolate, leafy greens, black beans, fish, fatty fish, spirulina. There's so many different choices, but also this might be something to look to for supplementation depending on the person. But even that is a very broad conversation because last thing I'll share here is in my nutritional science class that I paid for, I paid to get miseducated, guys. <laughs> Do not make this mistake. Um, I was taught that we just need in that same class, like Calories are the king, but also you need to make sure you get your vitamins and minerals. Really? He, of course, recommended taking a multivitamin. That multivitamin is giving you vitamin C. We'll say vitamin C. There's multiple forms of vitamin C. Is that the right one that's in there? Is that the one that I need? Is that the one I'm deficient in? Same thing with magnesium. There's multiple types of magnesium. There's multiple types of B12. There's multiple types of omega-3s. There's multiple types of vitamin D. Every single one. We, just, we don't know anything. This is why food is so powerful because it has all the stuff and the cofactors that actually make it work better because our DNA evolved having food. You know, Not to say that a whole food-based multi can't be helpful, but these are in the category of supplements, which should be supplemental to our diet, not become the diet itself, mm. if that makes sense. Totally. Do you have time to answer a few questions? Let's do it. Okay. I'll just pick out the two big ones. This one's from Susanna. She says, how does the timing of eating or eating certain types of food impact sleep and our ability to recover overnight? Ooh, this is controversial. I know. <laughs> so Who, I who asked this question? Susanna. Susanna. Oh, Susanna. <laughs> Oh, Susanna. 
I know she's probably heard that a lot, but that's super cute. Yeah. All right. So uh, I'm just going to be straightforward about this because, you know, with the time, but this is a comp, it's a little bit of a complex topic, but there's always simplicity in it. And what's said, you know, this is attributed to Einstein. And I came across this after many years of people telling me that I was doing this thing. Um, if you can't explain it simply, you don't know it well enough. All right. So even though it's shrouded in complexity, there is some simplicity to, to be found there. And hopefully I can articulate it a little bit for you uh, because I like taking these complex things and making them reasonably simple for everybody. Uh, so one big emphasis point when we talk about food in relationship to sleep quality, I've got to preface by saying, number one, everything has nuance. And this should not be some kind of hard and fast rule because you're a person and I want you to be happy and to live your life and to feel good, you know, but here's where the, the catch is with nutrition, uh, with eating and our, with food timing and our sleep. One of the studies that I talked about in my, my first book looked at the fact that when we eat, we got to get this, when we eat a meal, we do have a response from our, our sympathetic nervous system. We, have, we release stress hormones when we eat food because it's like your body, it has to be on high alert because what you put into your body can potentially kill you through our evolution. Hmm. Now, I know today is different. We've got all these safety things. We can go and unpack stuff, you know, that's prepackaged. And, you know, we're not out hunting. We just go and walk over to the refrigerator but our biology doesn't give a damn about that stuff, all right? It's still much, very, very much primal programming. And so when we eat food, it, it is a high alert situation. Plus, your body is doing the most miraculous process of turning that food stuff into you stuff. It's turning it into you. It's re it takes a lot of energy and a lot of intention. And so there is a stress response. But it's not that it's a bad thing at all. It's a beautiful thing. But here's the rub. The research has discovered that when folks, when we venture into obesity and we eat a meal close to bedtime specifically, there can be a fivefold, tenfold greater production of stress hormones. Your body takes it as an even bigger stressful event when we are obese and we eat a meal for whatever reason. We, we can start to extrapolate why some of those reasons might be, but bottom line, it's happening. And so here's why I'm saying this. Cortisol is I'm not going to say the antithesis, but it kind of is of melatonin. Like cortisol is about get up and go. Melatonin is trying to get you online to get everything relaxed. And so if we get a big cortisol spike because we're eating right before bed, that can be counterproductive to our sleep. Right? True enough particularly if we're venturing into obesity, right? Now, is this a hard and fast rule that you can't have something if you want to have a snack close to bedtime? No, that's no way to live. But as a general rule, we might want to give our bodies a little bit of time to process that food before we lay our head down to go to bed, hmm. right? Now, again, this is a multi-layered topic. So I just want to hit a major point of like, how does this affect our hormones related to sleep? And so hopefully that helps to, to, to paint the picture. But there are, on the other side, some foods that are especially beverages 
that you can have close to bedtime that actually improves sleep quality. You know, so there's nuance here, but in general, yeah, we could do this whole thing of like, don't eat hours before bed. I never, they never sat right with me. There is some science behind why that could be applicable, but it's more so if we're, if we're dealing with metabolic dysfunction already. Yeah. The last question, which you just, you may have just a few little tidbits. This is more about sleep. And this was, of course, the question that everybody was like, yes, please. This is my question as well is what can you do to get your best sleep or support sleep when you have a very limited window? So Andy, Andy in particular says she basically only has from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. to sleep due to, you know, toddlers and having to get up to work is there is there a way that we can improve the quality of that sleep and anything we can do when when sleep time is limited absolutely this is this is the key this is the beautiful part about it and even in that question itself you already know that that's true andy already knows that it's true it's not about it's what we said earlier it's not just about the calories is the quality of the calories. It's not just about the sleep. It's the quality of the sleep minutes. Hmm. Right? It's not just the number of sleep minutes. So my book is called Sleep Smarter, not Sleep More. You know, it's sleeping. It's sleeping <laughs> sleep all you better. can. Yeah. You yeah. know, same thing with, with Eat Smarter. You know, it's really about bringing some intelligence to it and getting helping your body to do the beautiful things that it's already designed to do. Right. And so, yes, absolutely. Improving our sleep efficiency is the key. And I've already mentioned and I think this has been answered um, several times already. I've mentioned several nutrients, for example, that help to improve your sleep efficiency. So that the sleep that you are getting is paying off much bigger, much bigger dividends. I'll share one more really quickly, which is uh, omega threes. Mm. Number one. Just for the cognitive performance, omega-3s get that express pathway into the brain. They also have that express pass to shoot right into the brain because they are absolutely essential for, they're, they're called structural fats in the brain. Structural fats, they're not used as energy. They're used to build your brain cells to provide stability, structure, plasticity, and to allow signal transduction for your brain cells to talk to each other. That's how important omega-3s are, DHA and EPA specifically. All right, DHA and EPA, not ALA, DHA and EPA. And one of the studies we talk about it in the book in Eat Smarter is folks who had the biggest deficiency in DHA and EPA had the fastest rate of brain shrinkage. All right, so when I'm saying it makes your brain cells, I'm not kidding. All right, mm -hmm. so omega-3s, but also for our sleep. And researchers um, at the University of Oxford found that improving your intake of DHA and EPA was found to directly reduce sleep disturbances and help to get deeper, more restful sleep. All right. So mm. there it is. All right. Uh, DHA, EPA. Uh, I mentioned magnesium earlier, vitamin C. Just making sure we got our nutritional bases covered is going to help to improve that sleep efficiency significantly. Yeah. Awesome. And go back and listen to our sleep episode, because I think, Sean, you did a great job of discussing what do we do when when we're in these high stress times and we can't get sleep? Like, how do we make sure that our sleep is quality? Like, you know, the other things outside of food. So, um, Sean, your book is great. It's called Eat Smarter. You also have Sleep Smarter. It's Eat Smarter in particular is packed with a, a ton of scientific info. And there's also 
I just found so many great puns and, and play play on words. Like my favorite was there was a, t- a section titled Rice Rice Baby, um, which was just made it fun. And you had a lot of personal stories. So it's it's an exciting read. It's a good read. It's what we all need. Thank you, Sean. Um, wh- where's the best place for people to connect with you other than, of course, your podcast and getting these books? Thank you so much. This is fun. I love always love talking with you. Um, but people can pick up the book anywhere books are sold. They're back in stock as of this week. Uh, they were sold out, as mentioned. It was the number one new release book in America, which is the craziest thing to say. But I'm just so proud. I'm proud of us because we're showing that this matters to us. It matters to our communities to get ourselves and our families healthier. Um, so we just want to keep the momentum rolling. Uh, so, yeah, so you can find it at Amazon. For now. So make sure there's a big, big reorder that's taking place at all these different retailers because of the demand. But definitely pop over to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Books a Million, local bookstores, wherever you get your books and you can find Eat Smarter. It's also available on audiobook. As you mentioned, it was like number one and two uh, in the country when the audiobook dropped. So just very proud of that, too. And um, also, of course, you can go to eatsmarterbook.com. I, I, my wife is like, you don't tell people enough about this. Uh, we really worked hard and I did a 10 video mini course. So I got my team together and recorded 10 videos featuring each video featured one of the foods that got the most clinical evidence for really helping to, and I don't, I don't use this very lightly, but to, to optimize our fat loss related hormones, to help them to just, there's no magic bullet food, but it just has data to support the process of fat loss and how that whole process works. We take people behind the scenes in the book and actually show them how does fat loss work? Where does fat go? How does it get quote burned? Where the hell does fat go when it leaves your body? You know, like demystifying <laughs> all of these things. So eatsmarterbook.com. Once you get the book, you can go over there and get access to the mini course. It's still available. I don't know how long we're going to keep it there. And people can hang out with me at the Model Health Show. And that's where, you know, where you listen to this amazing podcast, you can find me there, too. And again, thank you so much for having me on. This is it's always great talking with you. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. Um, okay, all the things. We'll link to all the things in the show notes, um, in particular, the websites and the book. Again, you can find Sean at Eat Smarter Book. You can find more about me at coconutsandkettlebells.com. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you for submitting questions. Love you so much. We will talk to you next week.